Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of the Fire the Cannon podcast. I'm Rachel, one of your hosts. I'm Jackie, I'm your other host. I'm Theo, I'm the producer. Executive producer or just Uh, producer this time? Shoot, I forgot. I got a promotion, yeah. I'm executive producer. Theo (laughs) currently has his microphone taped to his face, so we can say he's the executive producer, yeah. He's (laughs) Theo. It looks so awkward with that wire. There's nothing more executive than that. Yeah, it's a a whole situation here. And that voice you just heard is our special guest. Yes, they are a writer. They are a frequent guest on other podcasts, apparently. (laughs) They're a Zoom meeting tabletop role-playing gamer. They've already given me advice on my podcasting by asking me to turn my phone the right way around. (laughs) Please, wherever you are, give a round of applause to Sarah Gailey. Yay! Hello! I'm so excited to be talking to all of you today. And I I do just want to clarify, I would have been open to Jackie keeping her phone oriented whatever direction she liked. I just wanted to know what the purpose was because it seemed symbolic. Uh, It was symbolic of the fact that I didn't realize it was sideways. Theo and I just, uh, poor Jackie has had so many difficulties. We just kind of accept whatever weird thing she's up to every time we record an episode. Oh, my family tends to talk about me, too. Sarah's had so many difficulties. We just accept whatever they're up to. You've taped a cat bed to your microphone. You've, like, covered your walls in cloaks. You've done all kinds of things. I didn't tape the cat bed. I, I cut the cat bed up and placed it gingerly on top of the microphone. My cat's never used it. Hopefully the cats weren't in it when you cut it up. I think that's sensible because microphones perform better when they're cozy. And if they're a little mm-hmm. sleepy, and they can just curl yeah. up and take a nap. <laughs> and if they're a little hairy, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Perfect. I don't know. I felt like I was instantly close to you already when you gave me that advice. So I'm just like, all right, Sarah and I are friends. Jackie also canonically <laughs> has about 17 <laughs> cats at any given moment. And a lot of cats. That seems like a good number. So you may see them in the background. We, Whenever <laughs> Jackie records in her closet, usually some cats come in and Theo and I are always like, can't you just close the door? Why can't you just shut the door? And Jackie's like, I can't. I just can't. But we've never understood why yet. My house is 130 <laughs> years old and none of the doors are square. They just don't shut. They don't. And I need okay. to have like the golden ratio of cats to humans at all times. I have lived in a in a hundred year old house where the doors are just like they they just don't function and you try and get someone in to fix it see and they say this can't be changed i had one guy say it would cost me like five thousand dollars to try and fix the door and i'm like you can't just move it up a lot just sand it (laughs) that's the thing you live in an old house and you suddenly realize it's apparently impossible to do simple things like I did ask somebody, like a professional, to like, can you please just make the closet door shut? Simply because Theo and Rachel wouldn't leave me alone about it. And he said... Because your cats, they yell. They will <laughs> yowl okay. into the mic. That's a very special guest on your episode. Yeah. And he said, no, it can't be done. It can't be, it done. Can't be done. The whole house is too crooked. You'd have to knock it down and start it over. Build a new house around the door. <laughs> the very old house I lived in had knob and tube wiring. Which is how wiring used to be, I guess. It's like tubes that I, I don't remember if they're like glass. I think they're glass. And so doing anything with the electricity in this house is both extremely difficult and extremely dangerous because if you break one part of the wiring, according to the electrician, you have to like rip it all out and put all new wiring back in and you can burn the whole house down. Oh. Okay, that's of course what the electrician would say, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had a light switch that didn't work. And it, I just had to live like that. I was just like, all right, my light switch just doesn't work for it. 
I don't want to burn my house down. Okay. This is actually a good segue. It would be because, so easy to oh. commit insurance fraud. Hold on. I just had to I just had to say that. Okay. I don't know why. <laughs> okay. Legally, as the podcast legal representative, don't say that. Theo cut it out. For legal purposes, that was a joke. Yeah, it was. Legally it was a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. What I was saying was that is a good segue because Sarah has a new book coming out. A haunted house book, from what I have been led to believe. Ooh. I do. I mean, the house is like turning into dripping blood on the cover, so I thought it might be a little. Spooky. It's cottagecore. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, that got me really good. It's absolutely cottagecore. Uh, yeah, I have a little over a month from the date of this recording. My next novel, Just Like Home, is coming out everywhere books are sold. It is a horror novel about a woman who returns to her childhood home to care for her dying mother and confront the legacy of her serial killer father. It is all kinds of gross and spooky. I hope it scares the pants off everyone who reads it. I'm marketing it as cottagecore from now on. (laughs) And that is going to be one of those things that I say that is strictly funny to me. And everyone else will be like, oh, really? Cottagecore? I don't have to be like, no, this is, it's a joke that I cannot explain. You'll have to say, go listen to this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll send them here. I'll be like, you have a reading list now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Isn't it, is is it, it's a, a sequel to The Echo Wife. Is that right? Or a follow-up? It's not, no, completely standalone. Um, my first three novels, uh, Magic for Liars, The Echo Wife, and Just Like Home, are all standalones. They all go by themselves, but they are part of my unofficial trilogy of unlikable female narrators and questions about the origin of the self. <laughs> I could I could tell from the Amazon reviews. <laughs> <laughs> okay, in that case, I read a positive review that said it was an Echo Wife sequel. Huh. So... That is what led me to believe that. Well, you know what? (laughs) That person is on their own journey, and I respect it, and I would love to read the Tumblr post where they explain it. Yeah, it literally said, like, this was a great book. Uh, The protagonist of their previous novel is back, and in this book, she does this. And I was like, whoa. You know what? Again, whatever journey that person's on, I want to go with them. They're completely... They're speechless. <laughs> completely unrelated. The um, the antagonist... Or the protagonist... Antag- well, they're kind of antagonists. The protagonists yeah. of these books the have protagonist. different... <laughs> the antagonists have different names, different appearances, different backstories, different current circumstances, and live in very different places. Right. But you know what? Who cares? Sure. Sequel. Why not? <laughs> Let's go with that. Uh, just think outside the box for once. Don't you have any imagination? We'll call it a spiritual sequel. <laughs> They're the same person. I want to do a quick plug. So I haven't read all of Sarah's books, but I've read a lot of them. I like, you know, a good percentage. But I want to say, so The Echo Wife is your most recent one, though, right? Most recently published? Yes. Or was there one in between? Well, regardless. I think that's, I think that's right. <laughs> Time has has become very strange this last few years. Well, I do want to plug this one. The reason I was so surprised when I, you know, incorrectly heard your new book was a sequel because in The Echo Wife, and I'm reading the the flap to make sure I'm not, like, spoiling anything that people wouldn't get spoiled by reading the back— in this book, the protagonist's husband was having an affair with her clone, her clone. and then yeah. the husband ends up murdered. And so I was like, oh my gosh, this poor woman, her husband cheats on her with her clone, he gets killed, she goes home to visit her parents, and her dad's a serial killer. What a life. <laughs> There's just so many things that happen. Do you guys ever have that one friend who everything seems to happen to? Like, every time you talk to them, they've recently been through some kind of 
nightmare. That's <laughs> me with Jackie. my friends. Yeah. Jackie, it seems like that's you with your friends. And apparently that's this one <laughs> poor woman. If Maybe she's the protagonist of Magic for Liars too. She's also a private detective who was born without magical powers, <laughs> even though her sister had <laughs> magical powers. And Nothing yeah. worse. Yeah, I also wanted to plug Magic for Liars. I was just talking to a friend about it today, and I said, like, I don't reread books a ton because there are so many books that I need to read but that I recently or a few months ago I like got the audiobook and I was listening to it on a flight so anyway that's like for me that's a very strong endorsement but if you're someone who's you know who's interested in magical worlds and like for obvious reasons doesn't really want to be into Harry Potter anymore this is a great magical school book like one of my favorites that means so much to me um I was just gonna say I'm not sure if I'm the one that things always happen to. It's kind of all of us because, Rachel, if I'm allowed to make a joke about this, which I think I am, um, Rachel, (laughs) she got COVID and hit by a car in the same summer. So (laughs) I thought you were going to talk about when my family got like held at gunpoint or something. Yeah, her family got held at gunpoint and Rachel missed the whole thing because she was in the shower and then went around and like saved everyone. And then we've all had weird things happen to us. Well, I didn't save everyone, but I cut some people free, but. Yeah, it's. I guess when you said that to me, the fact that I was like cycling through multiple events to be like, which one is she going to talk about? I guess that's the answer <laughs> that, that a lot of things Sarah have. has just got their hands over their face, like, what is going on? Yeah. Did you get hit by the car after the COVID? Before. Before. Okay. Yeah, I was, I had just gotten in. So getting hit by cars is statistically correlated with getting COVID. So really just look both ways. Yeah. <laughs> I think the car gave you COVID. It's highly transmissible. That's why we need to get a handle on emissions. Yeah. <laughs> Through vehicles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> was that car even wearing a mask? Wasn't keeping a six foot distance. The reason I was mad is because I had gotten into rollerblading and then the car thing happened and it wasn't terrible, but I scraped up my knee a lot. So like I couldn't bend my knee enough to rollerblade and by the time my knee was recovered I got COVID and then my stamina has been so bad I haven't really been able to rollerblade since oh wow there, there's some time traveler who found out that you were like you died in a horrible rollerblading accident <laughs> oh, yeah. trying to save your life with everything they've got they're like we can't let her put the blades back on I like that better than like there's someone else in another universe who decided Rachel needed to get pushed in front of that car it's like no they were trying to save her from something even worse Mm. Yeah, that's basically what my books are about, is getting hit by a car and then getting COVID and saving your family (laughs) from being held at gunpoint. More or less. I think the things that happen to me tend to be things that I end up putting myself into the situation, but not really real. Because I feel like the best way to have stories is to talk to people that you wouldn't normally talk to because they always end up saying something interesting to you. (laughs) And then my friends will be like, why did you engage in that? And I was like, why not? Yeah. I don't know. And But then sometimes it leads me into strange places. Mm. Half the situations I should leave that I don't, I'm sitting there in my head thinking, I can't wait to talk to my best friend about this later. <laughs> I am going to just tell them every single detail. But I'm with you because a lot of my stories start out with me being like, so I was in this situation that in hindsight was obviously terrible. And it, there's something very satisfying about setting up the situation and seeing the person across from you going, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And <laughs> letting them feel that sense of uh, dread that you, for some reason in the moment, didn't encounter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very satisfying when you know that you're the one telling it and you're alive to tell the 
tail. Yeah, I do like being alive still after stuff. Uh-huh. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. Because you said, oh, yeah, I like writing. I think, did you call them unlikable female characters? Yeah. And I said, oh, I can tell from the Amazon reviews. And I'm like, I think you're maybe the kind of person who would laugh at those bad Amazon reviews, right? Because, of course, there's many, many, many good ones, like far outweigh the bad ones. But, you know, what Amazon does or any of these sites will, you know, put up like the most highly rated positive review and then the most highly rated negative review. And I think the first one that I saw was like one star. I don't know what Sarah Gailey hates more themselves or men or the world or something. And I was just like, yeah, I think I want to read that. (laughs) That's very high school poetry. Yeah. I love that. That's like something that I would like scrawl on my binder in the middle of math class. My favorite negative review of all time of my work is for River of Teeth, which was my first book. It's a novella. It's a pulp Western. We're cowboys riding hippos instead of horses. It's very pulpy and silly. Mm. All about the hippos. Oh, the original Greek horses. Exactly. See, you get it. (laughs) Water horses. (laughs) And my favorite review of all time of my work, which I have screen capped and which my friends and I use as a reaction image in texts, was an Amazon review. And you know, on Amazon, the reviews get like a title and then the content. Mm -hmm. And there's a star rating. And the title of the review is the word terrible. Mm -hmm. And then the content of the review is the worst. Mm -hmm. And it's one star. (laughs) And it's just so perfect. (laughs) Terrible. The worst. One star. Me and my partner say this to each other all the time. If one of them does something, like, annoying. All three things you have to say. Terrible. The worst. One star. Yeah, absolutely. Or if, like, I'm driving and someone cuts me off, I might yell terrible. And my partner in the passenger seat will say the worst. And then I get to say one star. And my favorite reviews so far, my favorite bad reviews so far for just, like, home are the ones, and the Echo Wife got this too, and so did Magic for Liars, the ones that are basically like, I don't understand what kind of girl boss this protagonist is supposed to be. What? Like, (laughs) they're not acting like a role model at all. And it's people being so bewildered. They're like, how can there be a female protagonist if she's not a girl boss? (laughs) Am I supposed to agree with all the things she's doing? Because I think the things she's doing are wrong. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not writing you an instruction manual on how to grow book. Those are my favorites. Those are the ones that that live in my heart. Is and with just like home, people are literally using the word word girl boss and being very confused and I just think they're so close to understanding something. Oh my god. I hope they get there someday. <laughs> I love it when people almost understand something. So I, I mean, in Just Like Home then is the protagonist, did she start her own business? Is she a boss babe? Is she like hashtag getting it? Is she an MLM person? Yeah, she's basically a, she's basically a fictional insert for Hillary Clinton. Oh god. <laughs> no, she's a complete disaster person. She's a mess. She lives a very unmoored lifestyle. She doesn't have have a lot of relationships. She can't hang on to a job. She struggles with her past and her her father's dark legacy and the dark urges that well up within her. So she's really struggling at the hashtag hustle, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Her grind yeah. set is like tight though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we talk a lot about the bad reviews where people are just like, I don't like this character. And it's like, that's not a criticism. <laughs> Although, okay, I want to talk about a bad review I read recently. I read the book Saint Death's Daughter by C.S.E. Cooney, and I was loving it. I was like, oh, I'm really loving this. I want to read some other positive reviews so I can feel like a sense of camaraderie. So I looked up a review. Oh my God, I, al- I also do that. <laughs> I do that all the time. I'm like, I want to find out how right I am. <laughs> so I found a couple reviews that were like mixed, which is fine because it has like a very distinct style and so it's either gonna you're really gonna vibe with it or you're not whatever but I found a review that was like I really didn't like this and the reasons were because one 
there's a glossary of terms at the beginning. And the person was like, how am I supposed to remember all that? It's like, you're not. There's a glossary. If you get confused, you just flip back. (laughs) The whole point. You could have just not had a glossary. What? Yeah. And then the other thing was, the other reason the person (laughs) said they didn't like it. (laughs) This is the whole concept of an entire book. Like, you read a book and you're like, how am I supposed to remember all of that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the other reason they didn't like it is because they said the chapters were too long. Mm. (laughs) How are you supposed to keep turning pages? Your little thingies will get so tired. I know. I'm also thinking like, girl, this book it's like 600 pages. Why did you even buy it if you don't like that? I get a so, lot of, for my novella-length work, um, River of Teeth, Taste of Marrow, Upright Woman Wanted. Too or, short. And people <laughs> always are like, I don't understand why this book was so short. I had one more thing I just wanted to add on the topic of bad reviews because one of you, I forget who it was, but somebody reminded me of it. But I was at the beach last week with my family, and this was – not a review. This was just a statement that one of my aunts made that I cannot forget. And everyone around when she said it, like we all looked at each other and no one said anything about it, but we all had the same look in our eyes. And what she said was, I don't like this beach as much as the other beach. The water's too far away. <laughs> you would think that was a joke, but it wasn't a joke. I was like, "You, the water is only as far away as you make it. Like you can sit wherever you want. <laughs> Somebody gave the park near my house three stars because she said there were men sitting in their cars like not doing anything eating their lunch or like smoking a cigarette or something Mm. like two men in the parking lot sitting in their cars i'm like you can't why are you dinging the park for that (laughs) (laughs) i can't believe it got three stars i would have given that park one jeez (laughs) unacceptable who's out here raiding parks i want to know who's out here on the internet like the the world has to know what i think of this but also it's a nice park it has like a nice trail. It has like a little baseball diamond, some tennis courts. It's a really great public park. It has built-in friends right there in the parking yeah, lot. Yeah, two guys in their cars. <laughs> Complimentary. <laughs> yeah. Great place to meet people. Yeah. <laughs> it has a nice parking lot, according to those guys' reviews. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Five stars each. Love this parking lot. Perfect for my drug deals. Some weird person <laughs> is staring at us and typing furiously on her phone, but other than that, <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, Sarah, going back to what you said about like being ambitious and then having to fix it, you mean like through your revision process? Is that what you're talking about? Well, I mean through literally everything. Like I, the other day I decided I was going to make a pie and I've never oh. made a pie before. <laughs> so I decided that I was going to make the crust extremely fancy. And then I did a bad job and I had to like repair the crust. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like that with my writing. Like everything that I write, I end up saying to my agent a thousand times, I don't know how to write because I'm always trying to write something harder than what I've written before. Right. But it's also with like, I decided to build a garden and instead of going with a pre-designed garden bed that would be comprehensible for me, <laughs> who has never built a garden bed, I was like, I'll design my own from scratch and use weird shapes in it so that it'll be visually <laughs> interesting. It, it's just like that with everything. But I bet it's interesting. It is, yeah. And it's, it's going <laughs> to send me to an early grave, but it's a good way to live. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because I... I'm a composer, like like I write music, and I have a similar thing where it's like, you know, I'm trying something new, I don't know how to do it, and I, I, so the first draft is like a disaster, basically. And I've noticed that the longer I keep composing, the proportion of first draft to revisions, it's like the first draft time takes much less, and the revisions keep getting longer and longer. (laughs) I'm curious if that has been your experience, or if it's different. I would say overall, yes. I find that 
that my first draft time, it's more or less consistent, but it's because I'm getting more and more burned out mm. the more I keep on pushing myself to the limit nonstop, which like slows yeah. me down a little. <laughs> but when I get into a groove, I can write more and faster. My revision times are definitely ramping up because I'll write the story and then talk to my editor and she'll find the thing in the story that the story really is. Mm. And it necessitates a huge rewrite. So for Just Like Home, I did three or four comprehensive rewrites of the book. And the first version of it was fine. It was a fine book. It was a perfectly acceptable book, but it wasn't right. the best thing it could be. Mm. And I think part of as we grow, we can see more of the best version of something. We we can get a grander sense of what's possible. Mm. And then we feel the need to push ourselves to fulfill that sense of what's possible instead of just being satisfied. I mean, what you said about your editor finding the thing that the book is about, was it easy to trust them initially with that? Or was it easy, you know, is it easy to like, yeah, I guess like, how, how do you develop that relationship with your editor? Oh gosh, that? I'm I'm thinking back because I've been working with her since Magic for Liars, which Ooh. I was writing, I want to say I was writing that in 2017 and then revising in 2018. And the first time she and I had a a conversation about big edits to that book. Her first note, there was a character in that book. He was, um, the main character, Ivy Gamble, is a private investigator. And I gave her an assistant because one of the tropes of noir private investigation stories, right, is like the the assistant who is the thing propping up the PI's life. And so I gave <laughs> her an assistant named Chuck, who was like sweet and smart and handsome and kind and was the only person in her life who cared about her. And I loved him very much. And she was like, you have to kill Chuck. You have to get rid of him. He Whoa. cannot be part of the story because he's a safety net for the reader so that the reader never really feels like something very bad might Wait, happen. Wait, does she mean Chuck can't exist or you have to literally kill Chuck? Like he has to die during this. She meant Chuck can't exist. Aww. She meant he he needs to be wow. out of this story. That character needs to disappear and be replaced by a sense of existential loneliness and despair. <laughs> 21st century detective's assistant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> First Amazon review is like, this would have really been better with a really sweet assistant named Chuck. <laughs> 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 I mean, we talked for probably two hours about this, and I kept arguing and being like, no, we need him, no, we need him, no, we need him. Finally, she hit me with that. You know, she had been, like, very carefully mm. trying to get me to come around to this, and finally she hit me with, he's a safety net that you're giving the reader and that you're giving yourself as a writer. You're not letting the story be scary enough and uncomfortable enough. And that was the moment when I... When I went, oh, I'll trust her with anything in my stories. Mm. I already was on board because I, I liked the way that she approached story. I, I trusted her as a professional. But I remember that moment as being the one that kind of flipped me into, I will trust her instincts no matter what, because I, I know that she knows how to push me beyond what I'm currently pushing myself. Mm. Mm. That was in Magic for Liars. So when it came to the Echo Wife and when it came to just like home... We had some, you know, some negotiation. We had some push and pull about how to accomplish goals. But now, anytime that she says the story is missing this kind of piece, like the story is missing something propulsive or the story is missing a sense of suspense or the story is missing a layer of complexity, I immediately trust her. I go, yes, you're right. How do we make that happen? Mm. Mm. I think, and what I was thinking was that... <sighs> And correct me if I'm wrong, was that just really, really hard to take Chuck out just logistically? Because, I mean, you've got so much dialogue that I'm assuming they had. <laughs> you know, how do you just take out a main character and, like, turn him into the absence of himself? <laughs> it's so hard. I've had similar things happen with all the books I've edited with her, with Just Like Home. 
in various rewrites, I had to flip everything that was seen as desirable into something that's seen as evil and everything that was seen as evil into something that's desirable. I had to take a character death and move it from the end of the book to the beginning of the book. <laughs> I had to take a character who had been dead the whole time and make them alive and present in the book the whole mm, time. These sound like drinking games. Like, this just sounds like, <laughs> can you do this? Like, if you draw five, you have to do this. If you draw seven, you have to yeah. kill off your favorite character. It's extremely challenging. And every single time I say, it can't be done, and she says... I know you can do it. And then I go and do it. Wow. <laughs> People don't give editors enough credit, I think. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. My my editor, I've, I haven't said her name yet. Uh, she's Miriam Weinberg. She currently works at Tor Books. And she is a mad genius. She is one of the most brilliant minds in publishing. Um, and I'm so, so grateful and lucky to get to work with her. She's the Ezra Pound to your Elliot. <laughs> Well, they're both fascists, right? Or just one oh, of Oh, come them. on. Not like that. I'm just talking about editors and writers. <laughs> Rachel always has to remind me when everybody's a fascist. I always have to know when people are fascists. That's my thing on the podcast. I appreciate that. I think, Miriam, when it comes to the way that I write my books, she is the brain to my central nervous system. Wow. She has all the smart, thinky thoughts, and then I just have the reflexes and impulses that I somehow stand in front of a keyboard and turn into words. Wow. But she she is a brilliant story crafter. I like thinky thoughts. I want to take that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> I guess now I'm, now I'm so curious, like, do editors, how do they get their training? Do, do they <laughs> write books earlier on? And I'm laughing. I think Rachel's write? laughing for the same reason. It's because Theo always picks one thing when we're interviewing someone and he just gets really interested in that thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's always some, it's like there's some aspect because he's an artist, you know, and then we get, right? we've had like, we've had comic book artists on and we've had tons of writers and he's always like, come on now, like artist to artist, give me the details. Like, how does this work? And then Jackie and I are like, hmm. Sorry. <laughs> but he's completely genuine. It's just, he's just like, now he's like, how do editors get their training? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, tell us. Is this the right question to be asking? But maybe. Let's see. Do you know? Do they just read a bunch of books? I love this especially because in creative professions, it's so difficult to see the path to right. to any given role, right? It's like we we like corporate jobs have a ladder supposedly where you know that if you enter at one place, you can work your way up to another place. But artistic professions are so nebulous. My understanding is that editors get their training all kinds of different ways, but primarily through kind of support roles in the industry. And there's a lot of conversation about whether that is the right way to, to do things. A lot of people are talking about mm. how that can exploit labor from people who are hoping to achieve a position that may or may not become available to them. Mm. It really it seems to me from my position as a writer, I'm not an editor, so I might be talking out of my butt here, but it seems to be very much kind of a an apprentice model where people come in as an editorial assistant, and their hope is that they'll become associate editor from there. They get immersed in the world of publishing by helping existing editors. And the ideal scenario is that they learn about the industry and they learn about the job and they learn some skills that way and then are given more responsibility as they become associate editors and then editors. Mm. That's, again, my understanding if you're an editor and you're listening to this and I'm completely wrong. I'm just a writer. I'm, I'm a dum-dum. <laughs> we'll, uh, Please don't be mad at me. Maybe I might I might uh, start reaching out, seeing about getting some editors editors on the podcast sometime, then maybe we can ask them. <laughs> oh, no, I'm scared. <laughs> Miriam Weinberg and Nava Wolf are both geniuses working in 
editing. The, uh, some of my favorite conversations are with the two of them. So strong recommend for podcast guests. Mm-hmm. All right. I might I might email you after to get the names written down because Yeah, I think you just volunteered yourself as a connection. <laughs> well, I I don't need I don't need to use the connection. I'll just I can do a cold email, but I'm gonna forget the names so in the course of the conversation. That's completely fair. I can't wait to see what random thing I'm gonna hone in on with yeah. them. Yeah. It's like I just gave you a glossary of terms. Like how are you supposed exactly. to remember? Exactly. Like, why'd you even do that? One star. I don't like how this book was so short. I don't like how it was so long. <laughs> Should we talk about the lottery a little yeah. bit and then we can move on to talking about whatever if depending on how long it takes. Now let's talk about the lottery. So audience, the premise of the episode initially was Sarah's book is it's horror and we're like well on our schedule we have a super famous like one of the most famous American horror tales ever I would say like up there with like Edgar Allan Poe and Lovecraft but um we have The Lottery by Shirley Jackson which was published in I think 1948 1948 and we haven't done a full episode on Shirley Jackson yet we will someday because she has a very fascinating life as well please bring me back on for that even if I'm just listening (laughs) even if I'm just here silent I I am obsessed with her oh yeah I mean honestly we'd be happy to we always we've been so lucky with all of our guests and we've always we really have we always want them to come back And all of our guests have been so nice, but I could tell from like just seeing the back and forth with Rachel and Sarah's emails that I was just like, Sarah's going to be really nice. (laughs) There's a lot of exclamation points. I like it. That's how you can tell when someone's nice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of that math of like, is this too many exclamation points? And I sound crazy. And then I take a bunch out and then I'm like, oh, that's not enough exclamation points. I sound mean. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a delicate balancing act, unfortunately. Constant calculation. My mom does that thing where she like ends her texts with a period. She's always texting me and she's saying, call me, period. And finally, I had to tell her because my sister's too if if she sent us that we would always you know we'd have our sister group text and be like did mom tell you to call her do you know what this is about so I finally told her I'm like mom listen if you put a period it seems like (laughs) really serious serious. so like if you just want to chat either be like call me for a chat or just do call me without a period (laughs) she's like what (laughs) Rachel's mom was texting me about something completely unrelated like a few months ago and when I called her because she was like yeah call me I have some questions about this thing I called her I took like time out and I went outside the building on my lunch break I went far away from everything because I was like Anita is going to be really upset like she's probably crying because of the way she was texting (laughs) and then I got out there and I was like hey Anita how are you and she's like I'm good I'm at the gas station got some pork skins how are you (laughs) she's like currently eating pork rinds and just like driving around she's totally fine i finally had this conversation with my mom too and now she does a very humane thing where if she calls me just to chat and i don't answer she'll send me a text that says call me when you can nothing urgent yeah which is great it's great it's so soothing and calming but every now and then i don't know if she forgets or if she's on purpose trying to like give my blood pressure a little enrichment (laughs) right but every now and then she'll call me and then just text me call when you can question for you with a period 
and it it spikes my heart rate every single time. I'm like, what kind of question is this gonna be? Did you find out about the thing I did when I was a teenager that I thought I got away with? No. Uh, Mom, if you're listening to this, that was a joke. For legal purposes, that was a joke. Yeah, they've never done anything as a teen. Didn't do a single thing. I didn't exist until I was 20. <laughs> okay, so the lottery. Should we talk about the story? Yes. 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 Let's talk about it. Theo, have you read this story? by the way. I read it in eighth grade, yeah. Okay, so that's also about when I read it. I read so many traumatizing stories in eighth grade. We read uh, Flowers for Algernon in eighth grade. Woo, that's a rough one. Oh, yeah. We read uh, The Lottery. We read, what's another? There was another one. I read The Scarlet Ibis, and that fucked me up. Oh, yeah. There's one called, like, it might have been called something like Let Me Call You Sweetheart, and it's about, like a like, a dolphin in captivity that can communicate through like uh, I don't know like Morse code or something uh, I don't remember the title but that song was like heavily involved in the story and I've tried <laughs> to find what it is since then but it was like oh my god that. and then there's we also read okay. the libertarian classic Harrison Bergeron <laughs> there were a lot of uh, a lot of things that I read as an eighth grader but this like it's a little traumatic a little traumatizing but I feel like it's got one of those like twists where when you're a early teen you can be really like shocked by it but not so much when you're an adult so maybe that was the right age yeah I feel I'm sure I read it at least once in school but I don't remember it and I think it's one of those things like the title you know is kind of apt but it it's easy to kind of forget really what happens in it so why don't you go ahead and give us the summary <laughs> I will oh well I was gonna ask our guest Sarah when did you read this story first I must have read it for the first time at some point in middle school. I will be honest with you. I have very few memories uh, from before my early 20s. So, like, a lot of them are sort of cobbled together from things other people have told me about that time in my life. Mm. So I'm sure that I read it at some point in middle school. And, of course, it's a touchstone text, right, especially in SFF circles and especially in horror circles. Um, But I didn't remember Mm. reading it or the experience of reading it, so I decided to go read it again for this podcast to make sure that the things I thought I knew about it were true. And I was so struck by it. This always happens to me when I reread Shirley Jackson's work, just the brilliance of what she constructs mm. in this story. And so in a way, I read it for the first time today. Wow. wow. Well, so so you kind of like had the knowledge of it already somewhere in your subconscious, but you don't, you didn't have a memory of it getting in there. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> well, let's do the plot real quick. And then we can talk about like a little bit more details, things that we liked or maybe didn't like, who knows, but all right. So, um, so the story opens, it is June 27th, which is coming up. Maybe we should celebrate lottery day from the podcast. <laughs> I don't know what that would be. Uh, we'll talk about it after, after the summer. <laughs> yeah. So you, you get the impression that it's like, it's definitely a small town. You get the impression it's like a farming community, middle America, as far as we know, and it's something's happening. Uh, everyone is like the whole town is gathered in the square and they talk about like, oh, some towns, their lotteries take two days. But this town, it only takes one day. And, you know, they try to get it over with quickly. It's an annual thing. It's like kind of an exciting thing. Yeah. Just a cute thing that this town does. We don't know what it is, but it's going to be an exciting little tradition they do. Yeah. One of my favorite lines from very early in the story is someone saying, let's get this done so we can get back to work. Yeah. It feels very COVID. <laughs> so you have the kids are all getting together and they're like playing and they're excited. They're talking. They're talking. 
And the first detail where you're thinking like, hmm, is that the kids are all like filling their pockets with stones and they're piling stones up in the corner. You've got the little boys are having so much fun with that. The girls are like kind of giggling and peeking at the boys and then the adults start to show up so there's really like there's not much plot the whole story is essentially it's like 85% setting the scene and then the last couple paragraphs you know it kind of unwinds (laughs) the rest of it you have the men and women who are showing up and they're all chatting nothing seems to be amiss they all seem like they know each other right it's a very small town so they're like oh where's cunningham oh he's over here what's what's this guy doing yeah everybody knows everybody's business yeah so there's different families and then they're talking about which member of each family is going to be the one to like draw the thing in the lottery right And the man who is running the lottery, so you have uh, Mr. Summers who's conducting it. So they have this black box, and we find out from the narrator that as far as they know, this is the original black box. They don't know if the black box is important to the lottery, and every year they kind of talk about, oh, it's falling apart, should we replace it? But they haven't gotten around to it. kind of just like a thing that they do, and they barely know why they do it, it sounds like. Yeah, they don't even really know why, but it's tradition. Yeah. And they used to use like wood chips, but they modernized a little bit. So now they use slips of paper. The thing I love about this is how much of the debate over mundane detail we get. (laughs) I live in a very small town that's kind of adjacent to a small city. Mm. And our local paper is full of stuff like this. It's this, it's debate (laughs) over things like what color bulletproof backpack kids should wear to school. And it's getting wrapped up in these small details that prevent you from asking questions about the larger process you're involved in. Uh, She has drawn that out so exquisitely in this story. Like, don't worry about why we have a bulletproof backpack, but just think about, do I want green or blue? Just think about Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) So we find out the town has apparently been like decently prosperous. It's at least been growing. The population has been growing since they first started it. So the box comes out once a year. The rest of the time, it's like tucked away in the back of the post office, basically. They're having to make lists of first, like how many households we have, who's the head of each household, and then who are the members of that family. And there's like a little... There's a little speech. Nobody really knows what it means. They also don't know, like, is the person doing it supposed to stand at the front of the crowd? Are they supposed to walk around through the crowd? Are they supposed to speak it or sing it or whatever? It's basically kind of a chant that they don't understand. But people, they don't really know what part's important. It says it used to be, there also used to be a ritual salute from the person conducting the lottery to the people drawing it, but that's gone too. We're moving on and they're talking to the villagers. There's like more scene setting, the neighbors, they all know each other, whatever. We've established that. But like, it's really hard to describe this story. If you haven't read it, audience members, just read it because it's so short and it's so, so good (laughs) that I feel bad describing it. This is one of the things where I I feel bad. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that stood out to me is, you know, they're gathering to have this lottery and they're talking about, like Rachel said, who's going to draw for which family and whatnot. 
And some of them are saying to each other, like, gosh, it feels like we just had one of those. Like, man, time sure flies. And then... Yeah. <laughs> like, I almost forgot we were having the lottery. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, I just looked out the window and I was like, oh, shit, I better get down there. We're doing this thing today. Like, it's not like kind of an afterthought for them. And then they say, well, some towns, you know, they're thinking about stopping their lotteries. And the older people, like the old man is like, there's young idiots, Gen Z, yeah. stopping the lottery. They're not supposed to be doing that. <laughs> With their cell you phones. you got to keep doing the lottery. It's very important for some reason. I don't really know why. So anyway, they basically we find out that there's two rounds of drawing. So mm-hmm. every representative from every family goes up and draws. And then one of them draws the thing that has a special marking on it. And then the second round is that whole family. So they say, all right, well, how many people in the family are there? All right, now you have to draw that many. So in this case, it's it's the Hutchinson family. You kind of start to get more of an impression of it being a negative thing because once the Hutchinsons draw, as soon as we find out that they're the like the chosen family, the wife, Tessie, Tessie. is immediately like, oh, well, we didn't draw correctly. Like, you didn't give my husband enough time. You rushed him. That's not fair. We wouldn't have drawn. Mm. But everyone, like, even the other members of her family are like, come on. You didn't give him enough time to choose the right thing. Like, he needed more time to choose. He chose the wrong thing. It wasn't fair. Right. I think there's a fascinating little commentary in there on the role of the female head of household in uh, white American cultures, Mm -hmm. which is very much the person who says other people should suffer more than Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. Because she's not saying this whole thing is wrong, we should stop doing this. She's not like, wait a minute, all of you stop, this isn't right, we shouldn't do this at all. She's saying... It shouldn't happen to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's saying it shouldn't happen to my family, it should happen to one of you, all of my neighbors who I know very well. She's saying one of you should suffer. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm. So that we don't have to suffer, which I think is just a, a fascinating choice in the story. Yeah. Mm. But you see Tessie, you know, her husband draws this thing. Her family gets chosen. And just like Sarah said, like, she freaks out. She's like, that wasn't fair. That wasn't fair. Everyone else is like, come on, just be a good sport. Like, we're all in this together. We're all doing the same thing. Yeah. Her husband tells her to shut up. The old men are like, sheesh, people used to be better than this. Like, Look at this shameful behavior. (laughs) And then Tessie sees some other people and she's like, look, there's them. Like, they have to draw. Make them do it. Make them do it. And they're like, no, that's not how the rules work, Tessie. Like, you know that you know how the rules work. Now that they have been chosen as a family, they say, all right, how many people are in your family? They're five. So... Tessie and her husband, Bill, and the three little kids. And one of the kids is really little, like so little that he needs help drawing his slip of paper and then like unfolding it. So very, very little. Yeah. So then each of the five then have to draw their own card out of the box. And the little kids open theirs. The husband opens theirs. And nobody seems to have anything but blank papers. And so at the end, you realize it's Tessie, the last one to open her paper. It must be the one that has the thing on it. You know, a hush falls over the crowd and they say, it's Tessie. And she opens her paper and there's just a black spot, which I immediately hearkened all the way back to Muppet Treasure Island. And I was like, the black spot. (laughs) Muppet Treasure Island. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You know what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, regular Treasure Island as well. (laughs) But Muppet Treasure Island was a bigger part of my childhood. Even the creators of Black Sails have said Muppet Treasure Island is the Treasure Island interpretation. (laughs) Yeah, it's the definitive text. It's surpassed. 
just the book, even. <laughs> because Muppet Treasure Island was freaking scary for a Muppet thing, I have to say. Anyway, so Tessie gets the thing with the black spot, and she's like, it's not fair, it's not fair, it wasn't fair, everybody saw it, you didn't give him enough time to choose, we have to start over. And everyone's like, all right, well, get this over with, I guess. And then everybody starts taking the stones and the rocks out of their pockets, and they start pelting Tessie with the rocks. And the story ends with her just saying, it isn't fair, it isn't right, and then everybody stones her to death. Yeah. That's it. They also, I guess, notable is that after she reveals the black spot, no one else in her family talks to her, and her family also participates in the stoning. We're told that, like, her little baby is even given some tiny little pebbles. Yeah, they're, like, gleeful. They're excited. Yeah, and— Maybe not the husband, but— they participate. Well, also, when her two older kids, when they find out they don't have the black spot, they are both like, woohoo! Yeah, they beam and laugh. When it, if it was me, I would be like, oh no, I wouldn't still be happy about that. Because <laughs> so, you know if it's not you, you're going to have to stone someone in your family to death. Yeah. Some of the children are saying, like, we hope it isn't our friend mm-hmm. out of yeah. that family, which is implicitly like... We hope it's our friend's sibling or our friend's parent. Yeah. Right. Mm. We know yeah. who the popular one is in the Hutchinson family, <sighs> and it's Nancy. <laughs> yeah. And so the thing that I was going to say is just, you know, they make this big deal over women draw for their husbands if their husbands aren't there. But if the woman has a son who's old enough, like if he's of age, then he can draw. So it's like all these little rules. But at the end of the day, it's like even a child could be stoned to death. So I'm like, why does it necessarily matter who draws what? You know, it's not like children are protected from this. It's like maybe in name they are, but in fact, they are not. I don't know. How do you interpret that? I mean, I see. So I I am very fascinated by uh, nuclear family structure and especially the history of Protestant complementarianism, which is a, a, a religious perspective that says men are created by God to be mm-hmm. in charge and women are created by God to follow. Of course, it's very constructed around a gender binary mm-hmm. and binary roles. And the way that they try and sell this to people is by saying, well, a man would put his life on the line for his wife if the time came that that had to happen. And so that's his sacrifice. And then the woman's sacrifice is um, all of her decision-making ability goes to her husband. This feels like it really embodies the strangeness of that because these men are being put in charge of this thing that ultimately is completely random. Mm -hmm. And they're being told, this is a big responsibility for you. And you can tell through the narrative that the men who go to take the piece of paper that represents their family, they're taking this seriously. This is a big responsibility. There's a younger man who is going up to the front and the whole crowd tells him, you can do it, don't be nervous. But ultimately all he's doing is drawing a random scrap of paper. Mm -hmm. And so it feels to me like a big reflection on the way that we socially ascribe all this sense of responsibility Mm -hmm. to men as head of household, even when circumstances equally impact the entire household. Yeah. And how that can be damaging for everyone, not just the women, right? Exactly. This is just a weird, a weird system that they have set up that in the end, like you said, is random and could just harm any of them equally. I think also like that they are split up into nuclear families because they make it very clear, Mm -hmm. like once the daughter is married, she belongs to her husband's family. So you have have like families and then they're split 
like they're fractured into households as well. And the fact that the way the lottery is set up encourages people to think of themselves as, you know, separate units from everyone else. Like this is our nuclear family. Like we're something, they're something else. Like there's nothing, you know, there's no flow between them. They're they're separate and closed off. Yeah, but then you also have this implication that like, well, the more kids you have, the less likely it is to be me to get the thing, you know? Yeah. The bigger my nuclear family is, the less of a chance I individually have. So it's like... Yeah, I'd start making like little puppets and stuff and say they're my kids. Puppets. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, what could go wrong with that? He's going back to Muppet Treasure Island. Hey, everyone. If you're enjoying this episode, we hope you'll join us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and Twitter at FireTheCannonPod. We also have an email, which is FireTheCannonPod at gmail.com. Our website is www.FireTheCannonPod.com, patreon.com slash FireTheCannon. That is where you can go to join any tier that you like. And for a small monthly contribution, little donation to our operating cost business, you can donate to us and get some nice perks such as listening to all of our bonus content um, getting a really high quality sticker we even have holographic ones just saying and you get to vote on upcoming books we have a theme coming up for august that we're planning which is summer reading um so that is going to be significantly more fun than when you did the summer reading on your own or let's be honest probably didn't (laughs) and we're going to do it for you and then we're going to talk about it and make jokes so hope you'll join us also if you want to support us but don't want to give us money or can't for whatever reason no worries just rate and review us on apple podcasts or on spotify or recommend us to friends it's not hard also um This is not what Rachel asked me to do, but I would like to call out one thing, which is we did receive a pretty funny email from one of our patrons. Um, Theo was involved in this, but so one of our patrons, Edward, recently sent us (laughs) a series of jokes that he made up. Don't tell the answer. Just read the question, see if anyone else can guess it, and then we'll reveal. No, tell the answer. We'll just do the first one. We'll spread them all out. All right. Edward has posed a question to us. The answer is going to be uh, a phrase that we say in our podcast. I'm not going to say the answer. They're never going to guess it if I don't give them a hint. All right. The question is, what do you say about someone who collects all types of soap? If you think you know the answer, write in. Again, it's podcast themed. Nobody's going to get this. All right. Back Back to to the show. Back to Rachel. (laughs) Back to something. Back to us. There's also a great beat in this story where we learn that piece of like, oh, if a daughter marries, then her husband, like she becomes part of that household and the husband picks her ticket. But that kind of comes from a place of people trying to game the system to be like, wait, maybe there's more people in my family. Mm -hmm. How many people can I bring into my family? Which when you learn the ending ultimately becomes, is there a way that I can shove more children of mine Mm -hmm. between me and this potential fate? And the more sons I have, the more likely I am to later get daughters and then increase the number further. And the more daughters I have, the more likely I am to lose them to other family members and... Or not to other family members, to other families. Hmm. It's an incredible indictment of the way that, again, this is speaking very much from a white American cultural perspective, but it's an incredible indictment of the way that we build families to try and protect our own interests, not to try and protect the people in the family. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I was just going to say, I think when we learn about this story in, you know, middle school, I don't, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I don't think that was what 
we were taught. I think maybe it was more something along the lines of the more simple reading of it, which is like, yeah, people don't care about other people. They just care about themselves. And like when it's Tessie's turn, like she turns on everybody and wants it to happen to them instead. And it's like, yeah, that's true. But there's all these really more interesting layers to it that I think, you know, maybe you just have to be a little older to get. But For me, it was all about the twist of like, oh my gosh, that's what this lottery was about. I can't believe it. Yeah. Lotteries are supposed to be good. Yeah. <laughs> I trust lotteries. These are like middle-class white American farmers and they're doing a bad thing? Yeah. <laughs> this can't be. Okay, here's my question. How good would living in that town have to be for the other parts of the year for you guys to want to move there? Mm. I wouldn't move I mean, there. if it was like maybe the size of New York City. No, even then I wouldn't move there. There's only 300 <laughs> people. Like your chances are... It's fun. It's my... <laughs> yeah. That's the size of the town I came from. Yeah. Ugh. I'm going to be so terrible and I'm, I'm calling bullshit because <laughs> we all live in this town already. <laughs> Moving to a smaller town might mean that you have a higher chance of getting picked for the lottery the same way that it means that you might have a higher chance of getting pulled over by local law enforcement or mm -hmm. getting discriminated against by the people who live near you. Mm -hmm. We all live in the town already. So moving to that town or not moving to that town is, for me, not even a question because just like in the world of the story, pretty much all towns participate in this with the exception of a couple that are like weird and crazy and apparently maybe rumor has it don't. Mm -hmm. There's no way to live anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So I would say it would have to be, I don't know, affordable. <laughs> <laughs> I would move there. Okay. Good schools. <laughs> it, it would have to have at least a four-star park. I'm not settling for a... <laughs> the problem for me is that on a symbolic level, I agree that we live in this town, but literally, I'm not having to stone someone every year. <laughs> and I understand, you know, it's like there's a difference, like... It's the proximity, even though literally bad things are happening to my neighbors, etc. I just don't want to stone people. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. No, but I mean, Shirley Jackson didn't realize that dozens of years in the future from now, we would be like the laptop that I'm using and the phone that I'm using probably resulted in a lot of people's deaths. And they were just across the planet. And I didn't really care because I wanted a phone. You know, at the end of the day, we're not responsible. But on, when you put it on a really small scale like that, it's. It, it just makes it so much bigger. Yeah, when you come when you come up close and confront it the way that she's doing in this story, right? Mm -hmm. You think, oh my gosh, it's bananas that these people would stone their neighbor. And at the same time, cities that I have lived in have voted people into office who direct police to tear down homeless encampments yeah. because they're like, I don't want that person as my neighbor, so I'm going to take steps to make sure that they get hurt. Mm -hmm. And it's not dissimilar to Tessie being like, it's not fair. Someone else should draw. Mm. And it's interesting how it's, again, random because we come up with all sorts of reasons. I forget what episode it was that we talked about this concept, but we talked before about the concept of how people always think it's not going to be them. That something bad happens to because they work hard or they're good or something like that. In our world, in our communities now, we can usually talk ourselves into reasons why, like, well, that homeless encampment, that deserves to be, you know, that's different than me. That's a whole different situation. In this story, it's not different. It's everybody has the exact same chance. <laughs> mm. That's, I think, one of the genius things about this story is that everyone goes, well, she deserves to get stoned because she was randomly assigned the identity of person who gets stoned, mm. which is precisely what we do, right? 
a, a lot of our systemic prejudices come from our culture going, well, we need someone to be bad. Mm-hmm. How about we mm-hmm. pick these guys? And they're the bad ones now. And we'll decide that they're bad so that we're good. And it's it's not at all dissimilar from drawing a random piece of paper with a black spot on it. And then all your neighbors turn yeah. on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's also a lot of kind of the seeds of McCarthyism in this story. Mm-hmm. You know, when are you going to suddenly end up looking at your neighbor and going, oh, they are the person who is worthy of suffering because that's what our society has decided. Mm-hmm. And now I have to participate in that. Yeah, we were all just joking with each other earlier, but now I feel quite different. <laughs> I'm surprised that over the times that I've read this story in class and so on, like in college, middle school, high school, whatever, I don't think that I've ever had a teacher who had us like compare it to the ones who walk away from Omelas, which would be an interesting pairing of stories, I think. Feels like a very natural yeah. combination. Which and it never even occurred to me till this conversation, even though it seems like it's so, so obvious. I'm not familiar. Would you give uh, the unfamiliar ones who walk away from Omela a summary? Yeah, how about how about for the audience? <laughs> yeah, for the audience. <laughs> it's an Ursula Le Guin <laughs> short story. And it's also similar to this one where it's basically just setting the scene and it's just there's this city called Omelas and it's awesome and everyone who lives there has a wonderful life. No one ever goes hungry or thirsty. That Everyone has as much as they want. Everyone's happy. They don't have to work very much, et cetera, et cetera. And she says, but it comes from the cost of uh, something that you find out when you're 13 or whatever, which is that there's like one child who's chosen – and that child is like raised their entire life in like in the dark. They never know any love or affection from anyone. And like their misery is the price that the city pays. And they tell everyone like, you know, it's very sad, but we have to do this. And this is why we're able to have everything that we have. Mm-hmm. And that most people like they find out about this and they're upset, but they're like, well, you know, it's fair. Like if we lived somewhere else and it was spread, like the misery was spread out more. Is that really better? And then the story is like almost everyone stays, but there are some people who walk away and we don't know where they go, but they leave. And that's the story. See, that's hard because... I feel like and know that there are actual children that live like that already, mm-hmm. and yet the rest of the city doesn't benefit from it at all. Yeah. <laughs> so it's Yeah, like- we don't even get the, the sweet, <laughs> sweet benefits that they do there. We're just making kids sad for no reason. I don't want to say I would be totally fine with living there, but it seems like an objectively better deal than we all have right now. If it's just one kid. I think the thing is, Ursula Le Guin was explicitly anti-capitalist. Yes. And I think the thing that you're saying tells me that you, like me, I think all four of us, like, we are part of the class that is that one child. That is what that one child represents. And I've spoken to people who are not part of the class that that one child represents. And they repeat this kind of thing of like, well, it has to be like that so that our society can function. It has to be that... Some people can't have health care and some people can't have houses because if they have health care and houses, maybe I can't have as nice a health care and house situation as I have. Yeah. Anytime I talk to someone about a story like this and their response is, well, our society is kind of like that already, but it's not serving me. That tells me we are the child and there's stratification within our group for sure and major stratification. But ultimately, 
the people who we should be pissed at are the people who are saying, well, it's working well for me. Mm -hmm. So let's keep the child there. I feel like this would be, they'd be interesting stories to talk about though, because like in tandem, because the, uh, the lottery, what's so fascinating to me about it is that at least with like the Le Guin story, she says, okay, this is the reason, like the suffering does produce this result. And in the lottery, there's no, uh, Jackson is like very explicit that they don't know why they're even doing this. You can kind of guess maybe it's like a harvest god, like summer sacrifice kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But there's, you don't know. <laughs> and they don't know. Yeah. Is there any mention of religion in the whole thing? No. No. Yeah. There's no mention of it. And even when they're doing the lottery, like even as it's actually happening, the old man in the story is still saying, it's not like it used to be. It's not like it used to be. Like, he's still not happy because... <laughs> yeah. Stones were sharper in my day. <laughs> yeah, the stones were sharper in my day. People didn't complain so much about it in my day. And of course, this is the guy, the old guy who said, oh, this is my 77th lottery. I've been doing the lottery for 77 years and he's all excited about it. It's like, yeah, because nothing bad has ever happened to you. Like, whatever. <laughs> but um, this story was originally published in the New Yorker and so I'm reading this on the New Yorker website now and it has, you know, little ads throughout it where it wants you to click on other New Yorker things. <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah, because a lot of people do think like, oh, if this is for something, it's probably a harvest thing on the farm or whatever. And there was a video from the New Yorker that wanted me to click on an article that said a mother's fight to keep her farm. <laughs> oh god! And then it was like this family sitting in a field like and I was like, oh, this is the wrong video to put into the lottery store. <laughs> yeah, we get we get one line. It's a rhyming line that I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's something along the lines of like lottery happens, corn also happens. And it's like an old saying hmm. that like if we do a good job at the lottery, the harvest will be good. Lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. There we go. I like lottery happens, corn also happens. <laughs> corn happens. <laughs> that's my that's my real boiled down version. Yeah. I love that saying alongside the like no one really knows for sure when this started no one really knows when the traditions have changed as a commentary on tradition for tradition's sake yeah and how often that's harmful and reinforcing harmful things i hate traditions i hate them so much (laughs) um because i find that so often they're an excuse to inflict things on people that they don't want inflicted on them to help reinforce a sense of social norms and this so this story is just like catnip to me it's it's <laughs> i don't know maybe it has something to do with the corn but we're not going to stop because yeah. if we stop this old guy will yell at us yeah yeah also i i'm wondering this i might be wrong but mr summers is the guy who runs the lottery he's in charge and it says it's because he has the time to devote to civic duties and everyone feels bad for him because he has no kids and his wife is a scold but I'm led to believe that he doesn't participate. Like, he doesn't have to draw a thing out, right? But everybody's like, oh, I feel bad for him. He his does. His wife is mean. He does. He calls his own name. Oh, he does. He does. Okay. He calls his own name and steps forward and draws a paper. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, which makes sense why everyone would feel bad for him. Yeah. If he doesn't have children to potentially sacrifice. Well, then who runs the lottery if he gets sacrificed? The postman. I feel like he could probably just say, oh, lottery's over, actually, if he's running it and he draws the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I no longer have time to devote to these civic duties. Sorry. (laughs) Maybe next time. I wonder, like, why, why did she make that choice, you know? If it was me... I would carry a blank slip of paper with me and then I would like Ooh. swap it out. I wouldn't even look at the one I drew. I would immediately slide of hand that. Right. And then I'd be like, oh my gosh, the corn gods don't want anyone to die this year. 
I would make every piece of paper in that box have that black spot on it. How would you do that? Just go hog wild. Ooh. <laughs> well, look. well, someone draws it on the night before. That's another part I love about this story is that, like, it's someone's job to draw the black spot and they could choose not to. They could be like, oh, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like you're Ooh. saying, like, the corn god wants no one to die this year. No black spots, but they draw one. Yeah. So it's just, it's wild that it's at every step people are choosing and you get to see how they choose. Mm-hmm. She does a, such a good job with the details that she leaves out and the ones that she puts in like it's a (laughs) sketch where the lines are very expressive so like you can tell what could happen and she just kind of lets you fill it in and every time I read it I'm always like I want to know more but I don't feel like it's underwritten I don't feel like I have to know more I just think this is like a very Mm -hmm. she's just great this is a very well written short story it is oh I was just gonna say on on TikTok, which is like my current drug of choice <laughs> when I'm like, I need to indulge. I go watch some little videos. Like this story's catnip, but TikTok is like crack. <laughs> and there's this charcoal, there's this charcoal artist who does charcoal art and he'll just like be kind of going in wild looking directions across the page. And you're like, this is just scribbles. And then all of a sudden there's a face. <laughs> and that's how this feels. This feels exactly like that. You're like, mm. I mean, these are fun scribbles to read, but what? There's all these scribbles. And then all of a sudden you realize that you're seeing the face of the town. Mm. I think it's so cool. Uh. I think you're completely right. It makes you curious, but not malnourished. Theo, did you have something to say? In my memory of it, all I remembered was there's a lottery and then there's stoning. And like the visual I had was the visual of when I read the first part of The Hunger Games and then the last part of A Handmaid's Tale. I just like <laughs> taped those two together and that was my memory of the story. You're not wrong. Also like your memory, like there's a lottery and then there's a stoning. It, that's it. <laughs> that's basically it. <laughs> hey, that's the whole story. Nothing happens until the very end, but everything happens. I, I have yeah. to imagine that, um, who wrote The Hunger Games? Was it Susan Collins? Suzanne Collins. Suzanne Collins. I have to imagine she was inspired to some extent by the lottery, but at least for her, if you were under the age of 12, I think you didn't have to draw. But in this town, (laughs) they're going to make a baby draw. (laughs) Back in 2020, an editor approached me about writing about the uh, Hunger Games prequel, A Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes that was coming out Mm -hmm. from Suzanne Collins. And I was like, sure, anticipating that what I was going to be writing was not going to be very Mm -hmm. complimentary or excited. And it gave me cause to reread all of the Hunger Games. And those books rip. They are so good. They are so in-depth. She based her world building uh, a lot on her father's experiences during the Vietnam War and on existing history of the way that uh, society uses fear and trauma to exploit citizens. Mm. Really incredible stuff. So rereading them, I was like, oh my gosh, these are super good. They've been really done wrong by kind of like marketing and and fandom. Well, also how bad so many of the knockoffs were. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people decided to model their work off what they thought was working about the Hunger Games without seeing the real depth there. Mm. But the lottery is is in the DNA, absolutely. And I think the, the one kind of, the one thing that she did to make it a little more grounded than having a baby draw, which is, of course, very startling and striking Mm -hmm. in the lottery, is that you have the ability until you're 12 to buy future tickets for yourself. Mm -hmm. So if your family doesn't have enough to eat, you can say, okay, when I turn 12, I'll have another ticket that goes in the lottery that has my name on it. And so now I get a bag of flour for that. And it in this current age of conversation about student loan forgiveness, mm. 
it is just so <laughs> damning because it's like, yeah, we give the we give children so often the opportunity to mortgage their own futures mm-hmm. in a way that's really brutal. And I'm almost like, oh, I kind of just wish that they would let those they would be honest and let those kids draw <laughs> like the lottery death. Like at least just tell <laughs> us what we're doing with this flower later on. Like, mm-hmm. well, I was gonna say, it, sorry, the Ursula K. Le Guin story that you talked about, the ones who walk away from Omeris, is that what you called it? Um, Omelas. 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 Okay. That reminded me, and I don't even really know where I'm going with this, but it keeps coming back to me. It reminds me of the movie Us. Did you guys, any of you see that? Yes. Okay, so I I don't know if I want to spoil it. Oh, I saw half of it through my fingers. I know, it was really, really scary. But it's got this kind of similar idea of like, some people live in the world and have a good time, and some people live (laughs) in a different kind of place and have a really different kind of time. (laughs) And... I'm just now realizing I really can't talk about this without spoiling it super bad. But um, it seems like, Sarah, you know what I mean. And it's just like, there's something about so many different forms of art that make people want to play with this idea of taking something that is absolutely already literally true and just making it uh, more obvious. Aesthetically different. Yeah, more obvious. Yeah. But that's like the most horrifying kind of horror, right? Because <laughs> it's not like a ghost or, yeah. you know, a zombie or something. It's like, this is real. You are the monster. You are the bad guy. You are the monster. <laughs> yeah. It's like more obvious because it's it's more emotional. Like the way the world is set up now is it's like it set up in a way that kind of dulls our emotional response to these things. Because we set it up that way. And you're <laughs> you're far apart from them. Like, the children who yeah. suffer from us, they, they don't live here. We can't see them. And you're literally not throwing a stone at them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like you don't see directly the impact you're having all the time. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. I think so often about the way that children experience horror differently from adults because children live in a state of fear very often. And they also experience unfairness and injustice Mm -hmm. differently from adults because they haven't had a whole lifetime of people telling them it just has to be this way. This is how it is. So very frequently when I talk to kids, we'll be talking about something that exists in the world and they'll say, that's not fair. Mm -hmm. I end up kind of being like, you're right. It's not fair. And I think when we create this horror that is about the it's not fair, it's very much adults grappling with that thing that we can all recognize as children where we say, that's not that's not fucking right. Mm -hmm. Why are we doing it that way? That seems really unnecessary and bad. Mm -hmm. And then we spend our whole lives hearing that it is necessary and it's good actually, and we have to do it. And then we write or we create a film, we create art that's kind of us going, there's part of me, there's a little kid inside of me that knows this is wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's artificial and it comes out of nothing and it just exists to cause harm. Yeah. Why do we do it like that? And I think that's some of the best art out there is us us letting that kind of little kid talk. Yeah, I I agree with that. And I also, when you said that kids experience horror differently, I went, yeah, but I was thinking of something completely different because I often think like when I was a little kid, I was like the kid that was like, I love horror movies. I love horror movies. And I still do. But like as a little kid, I wasn't really truly scared by any of them. Like even Chucky, you know, I watch Chucky and then I go to my room that's full of things that look exactly like Chucky. And I still was like, yeah, whatever. It was a movie. As an adult, I have so much more empathy that now horror movies truly can disturb and scare me to where I can actually, you know, feel what the characters are feeling. And I think, what if it was me in that situation? And as a kid, I was just like, none of that was there. You know, it it wasn't, it didn't truly mean anything to me. It was just a movie. So I don't know what that necessarily means (laughs) in the context of our conversation. I think it's right on the money, though, because for kids, horror is really enjoyable 
because it doesn't threaten their worldview. Exactly. They're like, yeah. life is so goddamn scary. Sure, this movie is scary. For adults, horror so often is something that threatens our view of our ability to control the world and mm. control our safety and control our circumstances. And this is, I'm sorry, I've been like thinking about this way too much lately because I've been working on this horror book. Mm. I think that for a lot of adults, the breaking point of horror comes at the moment when we stop being able to say, everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be okay. And that's so present in the lottery when Tessie mm -hmm. is like, everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be okay. Oh, shit, I'm being stoned to death. Mm -hmm. And it, that's the point at which she snaps out of the adult ability to self-regulate and to say, I'm safe, I am in control of my environment, nothing bad can happen to me, and is confronted with the reality that children face all the time, which is that the world is really scary. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's true. Kids are just at the mercy of everything except themselves. Sarah, where are you located? I'm a couple hours north of Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Yeah, what about you? Oh, I'm in Cincinnati. Oh, nice. Yeah. How is it there this time of year? Um, it's good. It's actually pretty nice weather. Um, last summer was when we had our one in 17 year cicada explosion. So <laughs> that was last year. Ooh. This is this year. I'm enjoying this year comparatively <laughs> a lot exciting. more. A lot yeah. going on in Cincinnati. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here's the big thing in Cincinnati. We are not covered in cicadas. <laughs> I'm very happy for you about this development. Yes. <laughs> refreshing change. People were making pizzas out of them and stuff. Like local restaurants were like, yeah, cicada tacos, cicada pizzas, barbecue cicadas. Oh, well, that's fine. I thought you were saying they were making them out of them, like using them to make the crust and stuff. I mean, would that be any different? I wouldn't like it. But as a topping, I think it's fine. Well, cricket flour is supposed to be really good. When I was in New York and I was trying to find just the cheapest possible way to live, I was like <laughs> looking into cricket flour and I found this one that was like so cheap and I was like, wow, this is amazing. I'm going to buy so many packs of this and just eat it all year. Right before I bought it, I realized it was reptile supplement, like something you're supposed to feed your pet iguana. I'm very glad you figured that out before you bought it. Yeah, yeah. He ended up just having beans and tofu and bananas, basically, right, Theo? And rice. And rice. <laughs> yeah. I forgot. Sorry. And frozen mango. That was, a, that was good. Mm. Frozen mangoes. Ooh, frozen mangoes. That sounds great. I wish you had bought it because I know you you would have eaten it. <laughs> well, yeah, you can't let reptile supplement go to waste. <laughs> Your nickname is the lizard lover, so I guess it makes sense. It's true. I thought the twist was going to be that like, yeah, it's so cheap, but then you get it in the mail and the bag is like this big because it's just made out of like one cricket. One cricket. <laughs> yeah, it's cricket flower singular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we didn't say crickets flower. <laughs> crickets flower. <laughs> okay, well, that's really funny. Um, so should we should we wrap this up? How should we, how should we wrap this up? All right, let's do some sign-offs. I'm going to say, audience, we have had such a great time having Sarah on. In fact, we've had such a great time that we're forcing them to do a bonus episode with us. So if you would like to hear more from Sarah Gailey in combination with the three of us, I believe it will be the month after this, we're going to do our third Goosebumps like Bump Patrol episode. And we will be reading and discussing the book Monster Blood. So if you haven't listened to our first episode, we released it on the main feed, right? So everyone can listen to it for free. Episode two 
if you're interested, you should go to patreon.com slash fire the cannon. And if you donate $3 or more a month, you get to listen to all of our bonus episodes, including that one. And you'll be able to listen to, <laughs> to this one when it comes out. So look forward to that. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah, so much for your time. This has been really fun. You're an amazing guest. Well, thank you yeah. so much for having me. This was great. Theo, should we... I can't even hear you anymore. Are you muted? Oh. I haven't been able... I haven't heard a word from you in like five minutes. I'm muted. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I thought you were just being quiet. No, I've been like thinking Sarah over and over and be like, why do they not seem appreciative of my thank yous? <laughs> we weren't responding. We're just ignoring yeah. you. That's a true horror. Oh my gosh. People acting yeah. like they don't care what you say. Yeah. That, okay. If I can recommend any horror experience, it's that one. You talk and talk and no one listens. <laughs> Your friends ignoring yeah. you. Oh, actually, if I can recommend a horror experience, I'm at a... Uh, uh, residency now, like with lots of, it's sort of like an artist colony kind of thing, but for whatever reason, most people are showing up late. So I showed up late. It's like me and one other person here. So it's kind of like a little ghost town. So it's a little frightening, especially because the guy who runs it kind of looks like the guy who runs the Bates Motel in Psycho. So it's like he's like showing me <laughs> my place and everything. And then he's like, here's where I'll be murdering you. I mean, where you'll be right. sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Don't check the shower for peepholes. Anyway, that was a great episode we just had. Sarah freaking is amazing as a guest. Yep. I agree. Also, for the audience, if you're interested, there are 25 extra minutes of this interview available on our Patreon. So if you sign up for our Patreon at $3 or more, you can hear these extra 25 minutes. Rachel asks us all if we have horror recommendations. Sarah has some great ones. At some point, I randomly ask what the scariest animals are. We all go around and say what we think the scariest animals are. Sarah had pretty great choices for that, too. It seemed like they had thought about it before. Next week, we will be doing an episode where we tell you all about the life of Franz Kafka. And he was like a freaky little man. So I think you'll really enjoy hearing about him. <laughs> Unless you hate Weasley little freaks, then you won't like it. Oh, no. But the week after that, we will be releasing an episode on The Metamorphosis, which is, you know, one of his most famous pieces of writing, like one of the most famous short stories. Of all time. Ever. Yeah, of all time. And then the week after that, we will be releasing, finally, our Patreon bonus episode where Theo went back through, like, over a decade of our chat history and reads us quotes and makes us guess who said it. <laughs> and you'll never guess who wins. <laughs> you'll never guess who wins. It was a shock to all three of us who won that competition. <laughs> okay, well, thanks again to Sarah. Check out their all of their books, honestly. Like, they're all great. They're all really great. We love them. Their newest book, Just Like Home, which I have not read yet, because it's not out yet, but I'm really excited to read. That is either about to be released or like has just been released. Check it out if you're interested in that kind of thing. If you're not interested in that kind of thing, their books are all like so different from each other that I guarantee you there's one that like is squarely in your wheelhouse. Nice. Okay. Bye. Bye now. Bye now. Bye everyone else. Bye everyone else in the world. Bye all you freaky deer. (laughs) 